You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 11 salvation or theories of atonement. Here we move from where we include within Christology what's often known as soteriology. Christology is in the sense is who is Christ, soteriology is what has Christ done. But as the church has always understood, you can't separate who Christ is from what he has done. The two go together. It's salvation and the truth of salvation, the reality of salvation that the church and Athanasius and so many of the great saints were safeguarding when they were declaring who Christ was. The reason why the church fought so hard and long and struggled over a clear definition of the one person of Christ in two natures is precisely because that alone safeguarded the truth that God had truly saved man in Jesus Christ. Here though we're going to turn a little bit to different theories of how God saved man in Jesus Christ. These are what are called the theories of atonement. How did Christ atone for our sins? The first thing I want to say is that the truth that Christ atoned for our sins is dogma. It's a doctrine of the church. It's simply the bedrock, in a way, of Christianity. That Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that his death and resurrection allows us to have a resurrection and experience eternal life. It communicates to us the forgiveness of our sins and allows us to be born as children of God. And that our response to that is going to occur through faith through baptism, through the Eucharist. But nonetheless, theories of the atonement, in a sense, explain how that has happened. And here we move from the realm of doctrine, in a sense, more to the realm of theological theories. That Christ's death atoned for sins is a doctrine. How exactly it did, there are different ways of approaching it. There are different ways of explaining how it is. And there also are some ways of explaining that are going to be false and other ways that are going to be more accurate. But the church has not, in a sense, settled on one particular view of the atonement, but allows for different approaches. But nonetheless, we will see that some theories of the atonement are going to have to be excluded because they deny the efficacy of the atonement, and other ones will be put forward. So how do we want to begin with this? Well, first I want to look historically, and that's what I'm going to do in this lesson. We're going to go through a few different historical examples of how the church, a few classical theories of the atonement, and then in the next lesson, in lesson 12, I'm going to look at, I'm going to since take all that we've done and we're going to try to come back and put the theory of atonement in a fully, say, biblical fashion, beginning with the history of Israel and seeing its culmination in the New Testament in Christ. But so the first theory that I want to look at is known as the Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. This theory of the atonement, this way of explaining how Christ has saved us, was commonly held by many of the patristic authors. It was certainly used by St. Augustine and St. Athanasius. And it really focuses on Christ's victory over death and the devil. Christ the victor. Christ has triumphed over death. Christ has defeated death. As we often sing, there are hymns about that around Easter time. Christ has defeated death. He has defeated the devil. Well, what happened here? And this is, a, in a way, a simple way of explaining it that Augustine and Athanasius used and many others. And what it held was that after sin, man was justly held under the dominion of the devil. 
Man was originally under God's dominion, but when he sinned, he forfeited God's rule and then came under the devil's rule. And so God permitted the devil to have dominion over man, to execute death on man, to execute suffering on man, because man had fallen into sin and had rebelled and separated from God. And so in that sense, the devil could justly impose death on men because men deserve death because of their disobedience to God. Remember, one of the curses from Genesis is that, you know, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death comes in as a curse in the world and therefore it's a just punishment of man who has sinned. But in Jesus Christ, we have a man who has come into the world as a sinless man, a man who was truly innocent. And if Jesus is truly innocent, then he doesn't deserve death. But nonetheless, when he comes into the world, the devil sees, in some sense, this is the Holy One of God. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. As many of the demons scream at Christ as Christ is casting them out. So the devil has a sense of who Christ is, but he doesn't know the fullness of who Christ is. And so therefore, he thinks that if he can cooperate with Judas Iscariot, with the Romans, with the Jewish high priests, and succeed in putting Christ to death on the cross, that he will have defeated God's plans to save mankind. But nonetheless, the devil, as they would put it, you know, he bit off more than he could chew, so to speak. Augustine would literally compare the cross almost to a mousetrap. Christ on the cross was the bait. And when the devil finally tried to execute death on Christ, just as the mouse tries to bite the cheese, when the mouse bites the cheese, at that very moment, of course, the trap snaps and the mouse's neck is broken. Well, in the same way, in the very moment when the devil tried to execute death on the sinless man, Jesus Christ, he, in a sense, his neck was broken. He lost his power over the rest of men. In a way, to put it like this, the devil had rightful power to execute death over humankind. But when he tried to use that power over the sinless man, Jesus, he then lost the power he held over all of mankind. Such that when Christ's death and then when he rises again, he shows that the devil couldn't hold him in death. And so his resurrection is a sign of all our resurrection because if Christ has broken the devil's power of death over man, then all men are freed insofar as they are in Christ. And so this approach to the atonement really emphasizes Christ's victory over the devil, his victory over death. And this one quote from Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, shows how this is a profoundly biblical theme. And he says this, that Jesus became man, and then I'm going to quote it here, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So through Christ's death he destroys the devil who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. So as long as the devil had the power of death over man, man was enslaved to the devil. But now Christ has overcome that. He has destroyed the devil. He has destroyed the devil's power of death. And therefore all men are no longer subject to the fear of death because death no longer is the final stage of man. Man can pass through death to enter into eternal life, therefore has no more fear of death because God has now reclaimed death in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. So that is the first theory of the atonement, kind of a classical one from the patristic period, known as the Christus Victor. The second classical theory of atonement 
is put forward by St. Anselm in the 11th century. And it's known as satisfaction theory of atonement. And St. Anselm put it forward in his treatise, Why Did God Become Man? Or in Latin, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Man? And this theory, which drew upon many of the political and juridical thoughts of his day, a feudal empire, and what it did is it took a basic notion that if you harmed somebody or if you stole something from somebody, well, of course you had to make restitution. You had to repair what was done. If you broke a window, you had to repair the window. If you stole a goat, you had to put the goat back. But not only that, you also had to make satisfaction. You also had to satisfy for it because the person's dignity was offended. If a man struck another man, well, it wasn't enough simply to say he had to repair the dignity. And the greater the man who was offended, the greater the satisfaction that was required, even in the United States. It's a greater offense. It's a more serious crime to strike the president than it is to strike a friend. Again, if you strike the president, it's a greater crime in terms of the United States because of the status of the president. So what Anselm says then is that, well, let's consider God. God's dignity is infinite. And if man has offended God by sinning, which man has in Adam and throughout the ages, if man has offended God through sinning and God's dignity is infinite, then man owes God an infinite amount of satisfaction. And only an infinite amount of satisfaction would satisfy the demands of justice, namely that God's infinite dignity be satisfied, that the offense to his infinite dignity be satisfied by an infinite amount of satisfaction. Anything less would make God unjust. If God were to forgive us, according to Anselm, without having his infinite dignity satisfied, then he would be introducing an unjust world. The world would no longer be just. So God's mercy has to be the perfection of justice, not the cancellation of justice. So in God's mercy, what he does, he comes up with a solution to this. Man owed God an infinite amount of satisfaction, but man, who is finite, could never produce an infinite amount of satisfaction. Only God could infinitely satisfy, but man, who had sinned, was the one who needed to make satisfaction. So God solves this by having a God-man. When God becomes man, then, according to Anselm, now we have this God-man, this deus homo, as man can make the satisfaction for man, and as God, can make the infinite satisfaction that man requires. So because of this then, Anselm thinks he's shown that the incarnation is necessary. It's necessary to maintain God's mercy, to maintain God's justice. Now within this, there are a couple different emphases within satisfaction. We'll look at it right now, how that Thomas, St. Thomas, two centuries later, clarifies one or two points. And this is important for understanding, I think, a better understanding of satisfaction. First is that Thomas says that we can't say that God couldn't have forgiven us without his satisfaction. So Thomas says God could have forgiven us even without satisfaction because we can't say how God's justice limits God's actions because God alone has the perfect knowledge of his justice. But what Thomas says is that it's most fitting, it's most appropriate that God forgave us through the perfect satisfaction of his injured dignity, of this unjust offense that man had created. And the second element that we'll see, we're going to see how this develops after Anselm, but Thomas brings it out, and Thomas directly connects this theme to his account of satisfaction, is 
for Anselm, what actually brings about the infinite satisfaction? Well, it's the infinite dignity of the God-man, which is true. Christ, since he is God and man, he has an infinite dignity. But what Thomas adds is that it's not simply Christ's infinite dignity, but it's specifically his infinite love. Christ's infinite love, his great love, which he shows on the cross, his love for the people who are crucifying him, his love for all humanity, his love for God, that love is the direct principle of satisfaction. So Anselm has, in a way, kind of focused satisfaction exclusively on dignity. Thomas kind of restores it to its fullness, that the satisfaction is made not simply in terms of dignity, but satisfaction is made in terms of Christ's infinite love. Now then, I want to go back to Anselm's theory of satisfaction, which is in the 11th century. And then we see that what happens before we get to Thomas in the 12th century, we have kind of a reaction against Anselm. Peter Abelard, who occasionally ran into trouble with the church for some of his views, and we'll see here again, comes up with a fairly heterodox view of the atonement. But in a way, he reacts against Anselm's strict notion of justice and his view that God had to become incarnate. It was the only way. God had to be satisfied. And that's really all that matters. Well, Abelard reacts against that. And he says in a way that's foreshadowing of many contemporary theologians that God's goodness doesn't demand a sacrifice. God is so good and infinite and loving that he doesn't need the sacrifice of a man's blood on the cross. He doesn't need to see his son on the cross in order to forgive man. So Abelard simply rules out all notions of sacrifice because he says that they contradict God's goodness. And of course, at this element, this is when Abelard is ultimately, of course, going against much of the revelation of Scripture, which does speak of sacrifice and ransom in the atonement. But what Abelard focuses on, he says, his death is not a sacrifice because that would offend God's goodness, but the cross is the perfect instantiation of love. And that when we see God dying on the cross for us, we simply see God's great love for us. And God's death on the cross then does not satisfy God, because God didn't need to do that. But what it does is it moves us, wounded human beings, human beings that had, in a sense, had become hardened of heart, who no longer loved God, but loved themselves in a false way. When we see God on the cross, when we see the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, we see God's tremendous love for us. And we see that we must imitate that love. So in a way, Anselm held a view of satisfaction that was almost completely objective. It was simply a balancing in a way of the books of the universe. The dignity of God had to be restored by a man, and the God-man satisfies that, which was true, but incomplete. Abelard, on the other hand, emphasizes that the cross is there for our imitation. God's love is perfectly manifested on the cross so that we might imitate it in love. And that, again, is incomplete. In Abelard's case, it's not simply incomplete, it's wrong because he actually denies the notion of the cross as a sacrifice. So what happens then is that St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was one of Abelard's chief opponents, and in terms of trying to see that he was declared a heretic in several different areas, what Bernard has a middle position. What Bernard says is that against Abelard, the sacrifice itself accomplishes something. That following the Old Testament and the New Testament, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross does 
bring peace with man. Just as Colossians 1 says, right, through his blood, man is reconciled to God. So there is a true sacrifice. But Bernard also adds, and he says he takes the good from Abelard, because he says that what is the heart of that sacrifice? Christ's charity. So Christ's love on the cross is the heart of that sacrifice. And therefore, Christ's love on the cross that is the heart of the sacrifice is, of course, calling us to imitate that love. So in a way, what Bernard does, he takes what Abelard was trying to recover, namely the great love that Christ shows on the cross. And that that love, of course, does call us to a moral imitation of that love. But as Abelard, in a way, had overemphasized the love and really turned the atonement into only a subjective theory of the atonement, Christ's death on the cross merely, in a way, affects what's wrong inside of me, inside of man. Man couldn't love God. When man sees God's love on the cross, he begins to be able to love God. So for Abelard, it's a purely subjective theory of the atonement. Anselm, to a certain extent, emphasized almost too much of an objective theory of the atonement. It doesn't really change man. Man is still the same as before. It just turns out that man has his debts paid to God. And that's, of course, true, but again, it's incomplete. So in Bernard, Bernard is the first stage of trying to reunite these two emphasis, the emphasis on love and the emphasis on justice. He brings them together because he says the heart of the sacrifice is charity. We see this continued in St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas in his soteriology, in his theory of the atonement, unites these two. And we had already talked about this when I said that Thomas added to Anselm's theory of satisfaction the notion that it wasn't simply the dignity of the God-man, but it was the love of Christ that is the direct principle of salvation. With Thomas Aquinas, we have an understanding of the atonement where we have, in a sense, it's both a subjective and an objective union of the atonement. Christ's death on the cross both is filled with love and therefore draws us to love God more. And it's because the sacrifice is offered with the complete love of the Son that that is why the sacrifice is efficacious in paying for the debts that man owed God. Thomas actually came up with five different ways that the death of Christ accomplished the atonement. First, as we've already talked about, he included the notion of satisfaction, that the God-man is able to make an infinite satisfaction because of his infinite love of the Father and his infinite love for us. So Thomas accepts satisfaction and in a way transforms it. Thomas also, though, includes the notion of merit. Christ's actions, all of his actions, according to Thomas, merited salvation because Christ, because he was infinite, because of the infinite dignity and the infinite greatness of the person of his word, any action the human nature did, in a way, had an infinite merit. Because it was the infinite love of the person of the word expressed through that action, each action that Christ did and merited an infinite amount of goodness. But Thomas says that if that's true of all of Christ's actions, then it's above all true of the cross. Christ on the cross merits, he in a sense earns all of God's goodness, all of God's glory to come down to man. Because as a man joined to the word, he has offered in a sense the perfect act of love, the perfect act of love, the perfect act of self-sacrifice. In addition to merit, Thomas also says that Christ accomplishes the atonement by way of sacrifice borrowing Augustine's term and again borrowing on Bernard's treatment and others, he says that Christ accomplishes a true sacrifice, that a sacrifice is offered by a priest to bring peace between God and man. 
and that Christ accomplishes this. Christ is the true priest who offers the true sacrifice, namely himself. He is both priest and victim. And as you can see later in Thomas's treatment of the Eucharist, it's exactly in the Eucharist where that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross is made present again, because Christ is both the priest and the victim in the Eucharist. So he offers himself through the ordained priest who stands in as Christ, he offers himself in the Eucharist. So the treatment of Christ's death as a sacrifice is continued on in Thomas's treatment of the Eucharist. The fourth point is that according to Thomas, Christ accomplishes our salvation by way of redemption. And Thomas here takes up the biblical notion of ransom. You were bought at a great price. That the blood of Christ was the priceless payment that was made for you. And, but what he says is that this notion of ransom, and we have this from Christ himself, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. Well, what did it mean to say that Christ's life was a ransom or that Christ's death would be a ransom? What Thomas says is that the ransom itself would be the money that is paid to rescue someone who has been kidnapped, a ransom. So man, in a sense, has been kind of kidnapped by the devil. And so some people, some theologians thought that in a way, the blood of Christ in a way was the infinite or was the priceless good that was paid to the devil in order to free man from the devil so that man could return to God. And we see that similar to, although it's not the same as the notions of Christ having victory over the devil. The ransom idea that what Thomas says is that ransom is not paid to the devil, but the ransom is paid to God. That ran the ransom is paid to God because man has offended God and is therefore in debt to God. And the blood of Christ is the infinite, priceless, immeasurable, wonderful gift, the wonderful price that when man in Jesus Christ offers to God, as long as man is in Christ, in a sense, no longer is indebted to God. So what Thomas does, is he takes the notion of redemption and he clarifies it by emphasizing that the ransom is not paid to the devil, but to God. The final point in the way in which Thomas treats how Christ's death accomplishes our salvation is he speaks of Christ's death as both an efficient and an exemplary cause. Christ's death is an efficient cause. What does an efficient cause mean? An efficient cause is what actually makes something happen, what actually leads something to happen. And so what is the reason why, what causes the salvation to happen is, of course, the cross. That Without the cross, there is no salvation. As Hebrews says, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So because salvation has happened, what has caused it in an efficient manner, bringing it about is the crucifixion. But he also says that it's an exemplary cause. An exemplary cause, in a sense, leads it to happen, but in a sense, is more the goal, the example which leads the process to its completion. And there, Christ's death and resurrection is the exemplary cause of our salvation because it is actually the example which will allow us to imitate it and actually leads us and causes us to imitate it so that we also have all of our sins, all of our sinful lives, punished by death, but insofar as that death is accepted in Christ, it also follows the example, the exemplar of the resurrection. We also will move into eternal life. We will move into a new life. We will move into the perfection of the glorified humanity that Christ revealed after the resurrection above all, because his death and resurrection are not only are the efficient cause of our salvation, bringing it about, but they're also the exemplary cause of our salvation 
our salvation will be brought about by entering into him, becoming part of him, and sharing then in the fullness of his resurrected life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.